Well, good morning. We're so glad that you're all with us this morning. We're so glad that you're here on this chilly, kind of rainy morning and that you got here around all the traffic for the uh, marathon that's going on. We are continuing our series called The Colors of Christmas this morning, uh, where we talk about these different colors and what they mean to us and kind of how we interact with these different colors at Christmas time. Last week, we talked about the color blue. Chuck preached for us, and he preached uh, a sermon that I think we need to hear more often, that there are people in our congregation, that there are people in our world who are in a blue season, in a time of life uh, that's difficult, that we are experiencing the loss of a loved one, that we are missing someone in our lives that's normally there, perhaps for the first time, that's no longer with us. Uh, it's a thing that we need to talk about more often. And so I want to make sure that we, we continue to think about through this whole series, the people that we've lost, the people that we love who are no longer with us. This morning, our color is red, Uh, and as you saw from Chuck's video, uh, this is a color that has a lot of different meanings for us. It's a color that brings up a lot of different emotions. One of the things that you might think of is you might think of of passion, of of great, deep passion for for another person or uh, something like that. It's often used as the color of love. But this morning, we want to talk about it in a context that's a little bit more sinister, a context that is very real in our world, a context uh, that deals with things like anger and violence. Uh, because it's something that's a part of our world, and it's something that was a part of Jesus' world, too. You see, when Jesus was born, Rome was the major power of the day, and they occupied the majority of the Mediterranean world, including Israel. Israel was an occupied state. They had armies uh, and figureheads over them who were controlling them and making sure that they didn't rise up in rebellion against the empire. Uh, it, it's almost got this, like, Star Wars theme to it, as, you know, Star Wars is about to come out, so I had to slip in a reference. Uh, It's got this whole idea behind it that the people of Israel are being controlled, that they're being manipulated, and they're not happy about it. Uh, Throughout Israel's history, Rome has been uh, the power for the the most recent history, but there have been other people who have been occupying them, and and people in Israel have risen up and revolted against the occupying power of the day. Usually, it hasn't been successful, Uh, and so they're still in captivity. They're still under siege. Uh, And so it's in this context that this man named Herod comes to rule in Israel. He's not a king in the sense that he's, he's got total power, but he's a king in the sense that he's been given power by Rome. And now he's trying to maintain the peace. He's trying to keep the peace with the people who are upset at Rome, the people who don't want anything to do with Rome. And he's got this job. And so he goes about and he does all these building projects trying to improve uh, Israel and trying to improve their life. But they totally, they don't buy into it. They know exactly who he is, that he's just this figurehead. He's just trying to appease Rome and to keep the peace. And what they want more than anything else is to be free, is to be their own people, to be a people who have the freedom and the luxury to to elect, or not to elect, but to have their own king, to have someone who really is looking out for their own best interests. And it's in this context that Jesus is born, and he's given the title King of the Jews. Herod when he hears about this, he's pretty upset. Because if you're Herod, you've worked your entire life to get to this point, to get to be the king. You've been given this power, and now you've been entrusted to keep the peace, and all of a sudden there's another king. There's someone else who the people can rally around and who they can rise up with and and begin a revolt. And so Herod does what he's best at. He finds a way to keep his own power. He finds a way to establish himself, and through it, He commits a horrifying act. And so uh, I want us to read through this story, uh, starting in Matthew chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles with us, we'll start in verse 1. This story of, of what Herod chooses to do in this moment to keep the peace, to keep his power intact. 
Starting in verse 1, it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in the territory of Judea, during the rule of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem, and they asked, Where is the newest, where's the newborn king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east, and we've come to honor him. When King Herod heard this, he was troubled, and everyone in Jerusalem was troubled with him. He gathered all the chief priests and the legal experts, and he asked them where the Christ was to be born. They said, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what the prophet wrote. You, Bethlehem, land of Judah, by no means are you least among the rulers of Judah, because from you will come one who governs, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi, and he found out from them the time when the star had first appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search carefully for the child. When you found him, report to me, so that I, too, may go and honor him. And when they heard the king, they went, and look, the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, falling to their knees. They honored him. And then they opened their treasure chests and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Because they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went back to their own country by another route. When the Magi had departed, an angel from the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod will soon search for the child in order to kill him. Joseph got up and during the night took the child and his mother to Egypt, and he stayed there until Herod died. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I have called my son out of Egypt. When Herod knew the Magi had fooled him, he grew very angry. He sent soldiers to kill all the male children in Bethlehem and on all the surrounding territory who were two years old and younger, according to the time that he had learned from the Magi. This is an incredibly disturbing scene. It's a scene with great violence, and you see Herod become angry. You see what it looks like when Herod turns to the color red. He kills off an entire generation of baby boys in this territory just so that he can maintain his power, maintain his grip on what he's achieved. He has no problem stepping all over the pe- his own people, the people that he's been entrusted uh, to, to provide for, that he's been entrusted to, to give the best life for. And he just kills an entire generation of them. This is what it looks like when the color red is in the background. And it's a sad, sad reality that can't help but hit you square in the face when you read it. You realize when you look back on this world just how red it is. That Herod was willing to kill so many innocent children. And then you think about our world. You think about the things that you hear in our world. And you can't help but notice that the world hasn't changed all that much. That the world was red then, and it's still just as red now. You read the newspaper, you, you watch the news, and you see all these horrifying, tragic events, and you realize just how red this world really is. When I sat down and wrote this sermon, we had had 352 mass shootings in our country alone this year. That was more shootings than there are days in the year. This is a a very red world. It's a world where we're not too far removed from events like Columbine and Sandy Hook. From events in Paris just a few weeks ago in, in California. Our world is a red world. It's a world that's surrounded by war and fear, by anger, terror. And if you're not careful, you'll get caught up listening to what other people have to say about it. That we should continue to be afraid, that we should continue these things, 
And into that world, Jesus is born as a baby. And Jesus has a message for us, a message that I think our world desperately needs and that we need to hear this morning. This world is red. Jesus' world was red. That much hasn't changed. And what's sad about this is that it doesn't really matter what part of the world you're from. It doesn't really matter what people you come from, what religion you have, what race or ethnicity or social status you have. We've all been affected by this red world. We've felt the anger and we've felt the fear. And we know what it looks like to see these events unfold before our eyes. And so this morning, as we gather to talk about the story of Christmas, the story of Jesus being born into this very red world, we realize that any time anger and violence triumph over forgiveness and love, that this red world is perpetuated. That this red world continues to get redder. That the blood of enemies and of, and of friends and of family continues to be poured out and shed, all in the name of power, all in the name of anger and hostility. And when you read the story of King Herod and these babies, it's really easy to think about how he's the worst person you can imagine. He's among the top ten worst people that you've heard of who've killed these innocent children, these people who had nothing, who had done nothing wrong. And it's easy to look on him and, and to see his sins. But the truth is we're all a little bit red too. And so this morning, as we talk about Jesus' story, as we talk about what it looks like to do something different than, than this red world offers us, we have to repent of the redness in our own lives, that any time we've chosen anger over forgiveness, that we've perpetuated this redness, this violence. And so we have to repent of that. We have to recognize that in ourselves. Otherwise, it's so easy to point the finger at other people when really we need to be paying attention to our own selves. See, this is part of the reason why we celebrate this season. Because we have to. If we don't celebrate this season, the world continues to get redder and redder and redder. And we ourselves are tempted to find ways to contribute to that. Even in the most terrifying instances, we contribute to that. But we worship a God who wasn't content to let the world remain in shambles, but entered into this world to redeem it and to make it whole again. And that's what the coming of Jesus means for us. That even though in some small way, perhaps we've contributed to the redness of our world... That the coming of Jesus means that God was willing to do whatever it takes not to perpetuate the violence. That he was willing to end the violence and the redness of our world by submitting to it and overcoming it and showing us a different way. When you look at the life of Jesus, uh, it's funny how this keeps coming up in his life. He's born into this red world, but the world stays red and he continues to counteract it by doing something different than what the world normally says we should do. Uh, one of my favorite examples of this comes out of Mark chapter 8. Jesus has just taken his disciples to a village that's far off, a village that's uh, out of the way. It's actually in a different part of a, a different region, different country even. Uh, so there are people all around them who are speaking a different language, who are, uh, have different customs. And Jesus sits his disciples down in this context, and he asks them who they think he is. And Peter speaks up, and Peter can't help but, but have this bold statement. And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus does something very interesting in this moment. Because even though Peter's right, even though Peter has told Jesus exactly who he is, Jesus tells Peter not to tell anybody else about it. 
And it's an interesting thing that Jesus chooses to do here because when they hear the word Christ or Messiah, they have expectations that go along with that. Expectations of a world free of Rome, of an Israel that's coming back to power, of an Israel that's been given the power that they once had and and it's been restored to them and they've become a great nation again. That Jesus is going to be the person who leads them out of captivity in Rome, who's going to throw off Rome and lead them back to power. And Jesus says, don't tell anybody because that's not what I'm here to do. That's not what I'm all about. Jesus' rebellion looks quite a bit different than a red rebellion because he's not here to seize power and he's not here to kill the next king and he's not here to take the throne or wear the crown. He's here to throw off violence and bloodshed by doing something that no one else was willing to do. Instead of fighting or conquering other people in Jesus' rebellion, he's going to submit to death peacefully because he wants to show us a different way to live, a way to live where we don't have to be so wrapped up in the anger and the fear of this world, where, where the news cycles don't have the last word, where the fear of other people and of different people groups uh, begins to, to wash away, and instead we see a world that's made new by Jesus. At the end of his life, Jesus again is encountered by this red world, by this violent, violent place. And a couple of things happen towards the end of his life. Uh, the first is, is when the, the, the guards come to arrest him. In Matthew chapter 26, uh, starting in verse 51, it says this, One of those with Jesus reached for his sword, and striking the high priest's slave, he cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put the sword back into its place. All those who use the sword will die by the sword. Or do you think that I'm not able to ask my father and he will send to me more than 12 battle groups of angels right away? But if I did that, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that say this must happen? And then just another chapter later, Jesus is before the the soldiers and they begin to mock him. Uh, In chapter 7, starting in verse 27, it says, The governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's house and they gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a red military coat on him and they twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. They put a stick in his right hand and then they bowed down in front of him and mocked him saying, Hey, king of the Jews. After they spit on him, they took the stick and struck his head again and again. And when they finished mocking him, they stripped him of the military coat and they put his own clothes back on him. They led him away to crucify him. And all through this, Jesus refuses to fight back. He refuses to call down this army of angels that he said he could because Jesus is doing something very different. And while he looks like a king, kings don't look like him because Jesus is inaugurating a new kingdom and Jesus isn't like Herod and he's not like Rome. Jesus is doing something different because he wants to show us a world where red is no longer the normal, where fear and anger, pain and bloodshed no longer rule the day. The prophet Isaiah wrote hundreds of years before Jesus. And in his writings, Isaiah begins to talk about a suffering servant, a man who who will come and and who will look like he's afflicted by God, but who instead will begin to heal the people and heal the nations. And for all of Christian history, Christians have read that passage that was written hundreds of years before Jesus and looked at Jesus and said, it's in Jesus that that is fulfilled, that that has come true. It's a, I want us to look at one of these passages this morning. It's in Isaiah chapter 53, starting in verse 1. Who can believe what we have heard? 
And for whose sake has the Lord's arm been revealed? He grew up like a young plant before us, like a root from dry ground. He possessed no splendid form for us to see, no desirable appearance. He was despised and avoided by others, a man who suffered and who knew sickness well. Like someone from whom people hid their faces, he was despised and we didn't think about him. It was certainly our sickness that he carried and our sufferings that he bore. But we thought him afflicted, struck down by God and tormented. He was pierced because of our rebellions and crushed because of our crimes. He bore the punishment that made us whole, for by his wounds we are healed. You see, we see Jesus. He's born into this violent world, this world where Herod is willing to kill off an entire generation. And we see throughout his life that he keeps coming back to this different idea of not a rebellion that will overthrow, that will kill, that will destroy, but of a rebellion that will begin to heal. That the nations will be brought back together, that by his wounds we will be healed. You see, the only thing read in Jesus' rebellion is his own blood. And so often when a rebellion happens, you look to the blood of your enemies, that that by killing them you might come to power, that you might be able to overthrow them. But in Jesus' rebellion, it begins to look quite a bit different. And on the cross, as he's about to die, Jesus, looking down on the accusers, the guards, on family, on disciples, on people who are just there to witness the spectacle, Jesus speaks these words, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. This is a red world. It was then, and it is now. And when Jesus was born into it, he came not to perpetuate the violence and the anger and the fear, but to offer peace, hope, and forgiveness to a world that is in desperate need of it. So when we think about the events of the past couple of weeks, uh, the attack in Paris, the, the shooting in California, all the things that go through our mind when we hear these things and what the news uh, has to say about it, we can't help but talk about this Christmas story about a story that begins not with a conquering king, but with a baby born in a manger. See, Jesus is up to something quite rebellious. He's rebelling against the way of violence and killing in our world because he doesn't want us to die by the sword, but to live life and live it to the full. As we close this morning, I want us to think about a story uh, that's not too far in our past, a story of a person who really understood this, who understood the way of Jesus, understood the way that he came to offer us, a way that isn't read in the way that we normally think of it. It's the story of Rosa Parks. Just a few days ago, we celebrated the 60th anniversary of, of when she stood up to discrimination and violence in her time. Uh, in a lot of ways, we're still fighting against a lot of that. Uh, we can look in our country and see there's still quite a bit of racial tension. And we, we look to people like Rosa Parks people like Martin Luther King Jr., and they understood what Jesus was trying to do, and they lived it out. I love the story of Rosa Parks, uh, and in case you you don't quite remember it, I want to retell it for us this morning. Rosa was sitting on in in the bus on uh, on a seat that she had paid for uh, in the middle of the bus, and the bus was becoming quite full and quite crowded, and it was at that moment that the bus driver came to the back and began to ask people to move further back so there'd be more space at the front of the bus for white people to sit. And the bus driver comes to Rosa Parks and her seatmate and asks her to move back. And Rosa Parks 
continues to sit there. Her seatmate gets up and moves to the back. And I love what Rosa Parks did. Because Rosa Parks didn't get up. Instead, she just slid over to the window seat to give a spot to someone else. She wasn't trying to say that she was better than anyone else. She wasn't trying to say that she had it all right. Instead, she was simply inviting them to sit beside her. She was inviting them to a way that was different, a way that that ended the discrimination and the violence done in that time. And she invited that person to sit beside her. Of course, we know the rest of the story. She was arrested and thrown into prison. Uh, And after the fact, here's what she had to say about it. She said, I did not want to be mistreated. I did not want to be deprived of a seat that I had paid for. It was just time. There was opportunity for me to take a stand to express the way I felt about being treated in that manner. I had not planned to get arrested. I had plenty to do without having to end up in jail. But when I had to face that decision, I didn't hesitate to do so because I felt that we had endured for too long. The more we gave in, the more we complied with that kind of treatment, the more oppressive it became. The world has endured for too long. The redness, the violence, the anger, and the fear. And at Christmas time, we celebrate the story of a baby who was born into the midst of that. A baby who came as an innocent person, not as a conquering king. A baby who continued to look for peace instead of war. A baby who was willing, in the end, to give his life just to save ours. So this is why we celebrate this season. Because in our world, in our red world, where there's so much violence and fear, where there's so much hatred and oppression, in this world we celebrate the birth of a baby boy because that birth is a light shining through history. That a baby born would not respond with redness, but instead would begin to heal this world, to make it whole again, as Isaiah says, not through force or fighting, but through love. This is the Christmas story that we celebrate. This is the hope of the world. If you're here this morning with us and you'd like the prayers of godly men and women, our prayer team is going to gather around the room. They'd love to pray with you this morning, uh, to pray with you to to celebrate uh, our world and and the joy that we find in it at this time of year, but also to mourn the loss, uh, the pain, the hatred. Uh, They'd love to pray with you at this time. Chuck and I will be down front. We'd love to receive you. I can think of no better way to rebel against the violence of this world, but to be reborn and given new life in the midst of all of it.